In the annals of human history, sacred texts and religious congregations stand as a testament to the power of collective belief. Pilgrims over centuries have journeyed to distant lands, driven by a shared faith to commune with their deities and fellow believers. This profound sense of community, brought together by a shared doctrine, creates a bond that transcends geography, race, and time. It's not just about individual salvation. It's about a collective spirit that uplifts, enlightens, and propels its believers forward. Your SaaS company is not a religion, but much can be learned from this concept. B2B SaaS thrives on the relationships it nurtures within its digital congregation. This isn't solely about software or solutions, it's about connections, the shared experience of users, and the value these interactions bring to the larger community. This shared journey of discovery, learning, and growth in the SaaS realm is akin to the pilgrimage of faith, wherein the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. Enter Lloyd Lobo of Boast AI and author of From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. After talking to 1,000 leaders and looking behind the growth of obscure ideas that went on to become enduring companies like Apple, Atlassian, CrossFit, Harley-Davidson, HubSpot, and more, Lloyd's distilled his learnings into a comprehensive guide on how to leverage the power of communities to drive long-term, sustainable growth. In today's episode, we're embarking on a journey with Lloyd Lobo, exploring the transformative impact of community-led growth on B2B SaaS companies. And for those who yearn for deeper wisdom, Lloyd's enlightening book, From Grassroots to Greatness, is available now. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. I'm Ben Hillman, and on today's episode, Lloyd Lobo speaks with Paddle's Andrew Davies about community-led growth. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for a field guide from today's episode. Then, while you're leaving your five-star review of the podcast, tell us what resonated most about our guest's advice. So, Lloyd, why don't you just give me a quick bit of background on yourself and some of the companies you've started? Definitely. Quick background immigrant, refugee, turned entrepreneur, and uh, community builder. That's the quick one-liner. Most recently, co-founder of Boast AI. We bootstrapped the company to 10 million in ARR, then between debt and equity, secured over 100 million in capital. Predominantly, the, the equity was growth equity, where the founders who had been grinding for years, making no money, eventually got to liquidate. Now, as a function of bootstrapping a company with less than 35 people, or so and no marketing team is when you know when we hit 10 million ARR we had no marketing team it enabled us to create a good financial freedom for ourselves right and most founders don't think this way but when we did the deal with growth equity we were able to cash out while also still maintaining nearly 40% stake in the company so de-risk in the short term and stay along for the long term and so yeah so that's been it's been a wonderful journey prior to boast Every other company I've been a part of was venture-backed, and they all failed. And you know, graduating from university, the first job I took was at a startup and only ever worked at startups. And they say, right, you become the average of the five people around you. So it was natural when you know, I, I feel, felt I hit my ceiling at startups, then I went on to start my own with my co-founder, who was my best friend since university. And yeah, so one of the things was when we started, I don't think it was a fundable business. We didn't even think it would be funded. We were just like trying to make ends meet. And and get customers. You know, when you're in it, Andrew, 
it always feels like you're throwing spaghetti on the wall. When you look back, once you found success, it feels like, oh, that was a profound framework that I should write about. That's the funny thing of life, right? Is like, when you're in it, it's always like, hey, is it sticking? Is it not sticking? But yeah, it's been a, it's been an incredible journey. And I, I think, you know, I would recommend it to everyone. The media has perpetuated this addiction to unicorn porn. In reality, the world is run by horses, camels, and donkeys. Well, we've got an audience here of uh, SaaS founders, many of who are bootstrapped. And so we love the bootstrap community. So I'm excited to have you on today. Could you give us a little bit more, um, perhaps about that journey on Boast before we dive in about your new book on community-led growth? Definitely. I think, you know, the journey I want to talk about is the journey to Boast first, right? And I think that is very important because there's a few lessons there, which I think is invaluable to a bootstrapper. So I spent my childhood in the slums of Mumbai. Childhood summers were spent in the slums of Mumbai. So I was born in Kuwait. My parents are from India and they weren't really educated. And the only option was go to the Middle East to work, make some money, which, you know, currency carries 10x. And so working in the Middle East, the one thing you get is free round trip tickets back home. So every summer, we couldn't afford to go to Europe or anywhere else. My mom stayed at home to raise me and my sister and dad worked almost 24-7. So we would spend the summers in, in Mumbai, in the slums there. And I, my mom and her nine siblings grew up there. And my fondest memories are in those slums because watching TV was communal, eating food was communal, puddles would turn into ponds in the summer when it was raining. And even going to the restroom was communal because there's no restroom in the house. So you're standing in line talking to people. It was so much fun. And every time I'd have to go back, I would cry. Fast forward a few years, the Gulf War hit Kuwait. And that day when I found out and went down the building with my dad, I witnessed probably the biggest miracle in the world. In 2023, when we hear about problems, it just belabors and festers into new monsters. We just like discussing and belaboring bad things. Negative news spreads and, and the social media platforms capitalize on it. But back then, as soon as everyone found out what was going on, they immediately started to think of solutions. Hey, I'm going to guard the building from this time to the other time. Somebody else is like, I'll join you. Somebody else is like, I'll organize food supplies. Somebody else is like, hey, if you have displaced family members, we'll organize shelter. And another person is like, hey, I know somebody at the school. There's no school going. Maybe we'll situate your family members there. There was a time where there were no phones, there was no internet, and security had completely lapsed. Every building became a sub-community that communicated with the next building, the next building, became this massive grassroots movement that coordinated with embassies and governments to eventually evacuate people to safety. And that day, you know, I realized two things. One, the power of people coming together towards a greater purpose, they can move mountains. They can make anything happen when people are driven by a burning desire towards a greater purpose. I was, I think, eight or nine years old. And I felt like, you know, the Rambo movie was very popular. I threw on this bandana and I was just running around and I was the lowest common denominator, but never did once anyone make me feel like I wasn't part of driving that greater purpose. The second thing I experienced was the entrepreneurial spirit. Today, when we talk about entrepreneurship, it's all about, hey, make money. Entrepreneurial spirit is nothing but taking an obscure idea to execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk, uncertainty, and ambiguity, and no other riskier situation than a war, right? Fast forward a few more years, we immigrated to Canada. I got into engineering. When I was graduating engineering, I just didn't feel like coding or doing a typical job. I was just craving that rush of uncertainty and risk and community. So I started to ask other business people, hey, how do I get into business? And the thing I kept hearing was communication, is what you need to fix, right? You're an awkward engineer. You need to learn to speak better. And I started to ask, how do I do that? And what I kept 
landing on was if you want to get better at something, if you suck at something and want to improve, put yourself in an environment that makes you do that something over and over again, because motivation is hard. Most of us are not self-motivated. And so the environment, the system of being in an environment that requires you to do it over and over again will help you improve. And so I started applying to sales jobs. Nobody would offer me a sales job, an engineer, awkward, can't speak. I applied to Xerox to all the way to smaller companies. Luck would have it, I landed a cold calling job at a startup and that changed my life. Now my parents of Indian descent lost it, right? Son graduating engineer, goes and does cold calling for $30,000 a year. Our friend's kids are at Microsoft and that. But fast forward today, it's the skill that served me the most, right? You're pivoting on the fly, you're polishing your messaging, you're learning to negotiate, and you do it day in, day out. So when I took that first job, I think the first call I made, I practiced four hours. And when the decision maker shows up on the line, I just hang up. People burst out laughing, and then I just never stopped. And then my journey from there, graduated from there and applied to sales jobs in the States. My wife now, girlfriend at the time, was in medical school in New Jersey. And if I needed to be with her, I needed to move to the States. So I get this TN visa. I land a job at another startup in sales. I'm like, wow, what a win, right? And this company sold to large enterprises like Tiffany, Armani, Simon & Schuster. When I go there, I realize what a startup is. There's nothing scalable. There's nothing predictable. So it's like, talk to these customers, figure out what to build, then present the requirements to the dev team and tell them like wireframe it basically. Product management wasn't like a very wide known profession in 2004 or five, right, as it is right now. And then, oh, by the way, you also need to figure out sales marketing, right? You need to figure out the marketing materials and the website and, and the video and all this product marketing stuff. I felt lost and I said to myself, I can't quit because I'm on a visa. And if I wanna be with this girl, I gotta figure it out. Communication, I, I kinda knew how to talk to customers and it felt more comfortable than cold calling because now you're understanding their requirements and you're distilling it down. Wireframing, I understood from software engineering. I'm like, how do I figure out this website stuff, this SEO, like all these things were new in 2004 or five. And everything I started Google searching was coming up from HubSpot. So after like the slum community and the Gulf War community, the HubSpot community became my next community. I learned everything from HubSpot inbound marketing. And I still remember Gary Vaynerchuk, who's known as Gary V now, had this Wine TV video series on HubSpot's inbound marketing and he was so bullish on it, right? And he just never stopped. He was this chubby young guy and he never stopped. And that became my community. Fast forward a few more startups, and my co-founder from university, he called me and was like, hey, I want to do a startup in the tax credit space, hundreds of billions of dollars given in R&D funding by governments, but it's a broken process. I'm working at a big four firm. It's so manual. Let's do this. I jumped at the opportunity to work with him. And then uh, the rest is history. I mean, in parallel, we did two other startups. We did a AI chatbot in 2013, which failed. Obviously, we didn't know what we were doing, couldn't get it to work. We never had a problem getting customers, and I'll, I'll share why. And then did an AI sales assistant, it was a Bessemer incubator. Uh, idea, worked out of their office for two years. That also failed. And uh, luckily we had Boast going and the bootstrapping had taken us far enough that uh, we sailed through and you know, 2020 got to the 10 million ARR and uh, were able to sell half the company and, and at least de-risk in the short term. So that's the, that's the longer journey. But if I had to find three things that were paramount to getting to here, it would be communication, creation, and consistency. The ability to communicate is huge. It's in everything, convincing employees, convincing your spouse that I'm going to do failure after failure and not bring money home. Please believe in me to convincing investors, early employees, customers. It's all communication. Your ability to create, especially in a product driven world is everything. But if you're not consistent, you'll never get anywhere. Like you look at Gary Vee I talked about or Jason Lemkin 
or Warren Buffett, who's the single richest person in investing, or the single richest person in SaaS being Larry Ellison. They just never stop. They just keep going. Compound interest and consistency is what we call overnight success. For someone who introduces himself as a, in the early days, needing lots of communication skill and advice, it clearly is something that's a superpower now. Lloyd, that's awesome. You've got this book, Community-Led Growth. Now there's lots of different LGs, PLG, CLG, SLG. Let's just define before we get into it. What is, what is community? How do you define community? Definitely for me, community, and actually I'm going to take this in an interesting direction. And in route to writing this book, I end up talking to about a thousand people or more. Like we have a large community with traction. I rewatched all our traction content. And I also looked behind the scenes of all the iconic enduring brands, not just the startups that exploded, but the enduring brands like the Harley Davidson, the Apples, the brands that stuck around generations. And I found something very interesting, right? Every obscure idea that eventually became a global worldwide phenomenon from Christianity to CrossFit. Every obscure idea that became a global phenomena had four things in common, four stages. One, people listen to you or buy your product, you have an audience. When you bring that audience together to interact with one another, it becomes two-way, it, it becomes a community. Now, when that community comes together to create impact towards a purpose that's far greater than your product or profits, it becomes a movement. And when that movement has undying faith in its purpose, through sustained rituals, over time, it becomes a cult or a religion. So you follow that pattern of audience, one-way communication, community, two-way coming together, movement, creating impact towards a greater purpose beyond your product or, uh, or profits, and then cult or religion is undying belief in that purpose through sustained rituals. Audience, community, movement, religion, or cult. And the key thing in making it all happen is community. It's bringing people together. A lot of us today are focused on building audiences on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on socials in general, right? The thing that happens is if the influencer is gone, the audience is gone. It moves away because it's not a community. It's an audience, right? If you don't have the emails, getting their emails and getting their contact information is the first step in actually bringing them together. But if you're not bringing them together by whatever means, it's going to be hard to sustain for the long haul. You can sustain for the long haul, but like if you lose energy and stop creating, you'll start seeing your engagement go down. What do you also think about community in terms of its forum? I've heard community definitions meaning about, yes, about purpose, about interrelatedness, and also about having some sense of boundary or forum. So do communities have to have a line around them? Do they have, a, have to have a certain platform that they're sitting on? You know, what's really interesting is I get this question a lot because, you know, we're one of the few community-led businesses that leveraged not community of product, but a community of practice, like HubSpot being the other one, Gainsight. But the you know, Notion has a great community, but it's a community around their product. And I get asked this by like VCs and educate us on community. And the first question I get asked by almost everyone is, hey, I want to build a community. Number one, should I be on Facebook groups or should I be on Slack? or Discord or WhatsApp? And number two, when will I make money? This question is like asking, this question is like asking, like think, think about it, right? I want to go build a church, but I'm actually not sure what religion we're going to practice there. So how do you know you need to build a church or a mosque or a temple? And it's, it's the same way of saying, I want to build a house, but I don't know what country I want to be in or anything like that, right? 
And so it's just, it's like starting with the tools, which I hate. I think you got to start with the values and the vision and the purpose, then figure out the customer and understand them, figure out the customer's circle of influence and not only their problems and their goals, problems and goals are good, but they're short term. You got to figure out their aspirations. Like this graphic, I think we all share a lot. Product marketing graphic is like Mario eats the mushroom, becomes Super Mario. Your product is not the mushroom. Your product is Super Mario. Customers want an outcome. They don't want software. They don't want the next SaaS tool. So how do you get them to that outcome? So what is what is that aspiration they're looking for? Because your aspiration, your customer's aspiration gives you your forever, your why, your purpose that exists beyond you. And then you, when you understand your customer's problems, their pains, their aspirations, what stands in their way, where they eat, breathe, drink, sleep, who are the people they follow, who are the other tools they pay for, who are the blogs and magazines they read, what platforms they are they prevalent on. So you understand the customer really well, you understand their circle of influence. Then you can go down the path of then creating content that resonates around a white space and then start bringing them together and then going down that journey. For example, like the world doesn't need the hundredth Slack group. Let me ask you this. How many Slack groups and WhatsApp groups you're a part of and what have you archived? I, uh, I went on a cleanup exercise recently, Lloyd. So yeah, too many. And I archived about 50% of them. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably down to the 20 rather than the 40. Let me ask you this other question then, right? The world is driven by two kinds of triggers or motivations. One is extrinsic triggers, which is I send you a push notification, I send you an email. Eventually, you hope every product, every community, every idea hopes that it becomes an intrinsic motivation where the person wakes up and thinks, I want to go to this. What communities or products or platforms are intrinsic motivators for you? Like you have to check in yourself. Is there a product or two like that for you? Yeah, I mean, the one that firstly comes to mind, there's a community of CMOs that I learn from and content creators I learn from, and I go to that WhatsApp channel to ask questions and to learn. I never wait for the ping to come to me. Exactly. So you want to get to that, right? And so the only way to get to that, and, and flipping the question on you, because you're a CMO and, and far more experienced than me, I'm, I'm an engineer who bumbled my way into this. But what was it about that community that drove it? Because initially, it's all extrinsic, right? It's all like somebody had to invite you, you joined, you experienced an aha moment, you made an investment to keep coming back. And over time then, it wasn't an intrinsic motivation on day one. Maybe it was, I don't know, day 30 or day 60. But what was it that made it an intrinsic motivation for you? Two things. Someone who was in a crisis and reached out and I was able to help them and they were grateful for that. And then the reverse being true, where I had a problem I couldn't solve, I reached out and someone else helped me in return. It's the camaraderie, it's the joy of giving, it's helping each other, right? Like it's like Nierial has this framework, like trigger, action, variable reward, right? Every time you go and engage, the, the reward you get is different. So it, it's like, a, you don't know if it's, if it's a static dopamine hit, then you, you can, you can put it on the back burner, but if it's different, then you want to engage and then you make an investment. You want to hope that that investment eventually becomes an internal trigger. And you're now also inviting other friends, right? Then it eventually becomes a ritual like CrossFit's workout of the day, like Harley Davidson's weekend warriors, right? Once it becomes that ritual, like once your core action that you do, right? Every product even has a core action. And we often say that building a product with no core action can lead to disasters because you're trying to now grow audiences that don't know why they're coming to your product for. Every product should have a core action. If your users didn't do this action, 
your product just wouldn't exist. And maybe YouTube has a couple of them. Twitter now has a couple of them. And so every community has that too. What is a core action you want your people to keep doing? And if they don't do that, this community is useless. So I think it's about before you figure out the platform, you got to understand the audience. You got to understand the values. You got to figure out the core actions you want them performing. Then you can pick the channel, right? And the channel comes from where they like to engage. So if your audience is very active on WhatsApp, then why would you create a Slack group because it's taking them somewhere else. That's how I look at it. But the home is very important. I think every community has a home and that home doesn't have to be a physical space. It can be an online space. The home is home is key, right? For communities. I mean, like look at like church communities or, you know, Harley Davidson, they don't have a home, but the home meaning the concept of a home is coming together to some place to congregate and do something. So the Harley Davidson community comes together on the weekend someplace and they go on rides. Or the CrossFit community goes to the local gym they call the box and then they do the workout of the day. You mentioned a couple of phrases there that I want to dive in on before we get to the question, how do you build community? Because I can hear thousands of people listening saying, just tell me how, Lloyd. So we'll get to that in a minute. But you said community of practice and community of product. And I think you've also talked about community of play. So could you quickly take a moment to define that those definitions for us and how they differ? Definitely. So once you think of building a community, right, there's three that you can build. One is a community of practice, which is bringing people together to learn about a specific skill or a craft, like HubSpot's inbound marketing community. I didn't even know HubSpot had software, by the way, in 2004 or five. Everything I learned was from their community of practice. When Gainsight started, I think Nick was just doing these events around customer success, I don't even think they had software. We were all just learning on how to become better at that particular skill or craft. And for me, it was very valuable because I was a founder doing everything. So I needed to learn marketing, learn customer success, all of that stuff. So that's a community of practice. Traction is a community of practice for innovators, helping them innovate faster, better. Now, community of product is where people come to learn about your product, to build on your product, to evangelize your product, like the Notion community, like the Atlassian community in many senses. And a community of play is where people come together to have fun, like Harley Davidson, Nike Running Club, community of play. What I tell people is when you're starting out, if you don't have product market fit, if you don't barely have any customers, don't build a community of product because people will think they're being sold to. Boast didn't barely have any customers. We had to build a community to get customers. And so if we built the Boast community talking about R&D funding, People are going to be like, what is this, right? They're trying to sell us. They're sales. It's like a timeshare. It's not an event. It's a timeshare kind of thing. The only thing missing is they're not putting their contract at the end of the <laughs> at the end of the event. You don't want that to happen. The other thing is if you're on a product that's used very frequently, like there are some products which are awesome, right? Like awesome in the sense you put it out there, it works in the background, and it just delivers an outcome. People don't need to log in day in, day out. It just works. And so if people are not using your product frequently, it's not complex. It's simple then there's not much to talk about there too, right? So think about the community you want to build based on the based on where you are as a company. Do I have customers or not? You can't just run sales pitches when you don't have product market fit because it'll it'll go south. So I think think deliberately there. The other thing I want to add actually before we go into how do you build a community is why should you build a community, right? Because you know, you're in you're CMO. You've you've done this all your life. You know it's hard. Building a community is a labor of love. It's a marathon in the heart and mind. And attribution, which is your name of the game, is very difficult, right? And what happens with community is I've faced this because we went through the deal with the growth equity and it was very hard to explain how the community drove. And then finally, I put one chart that showed the number of events we did up into the right and the path to 10 million. Uh, and I'm like, I can't explain beyond this because somebody comes to an event and they have a good experience. They forward the recap link to a colleague. The colleague likes it, forwards it to a, another colleague saying, oh, check this out. Download this white. They download the white paper. Ping goes to SDR. SDR then goes and 
calls them and it gets attributed to the SDR. We live in a multi-touch world, but multi-touch attribution is something that 99% of the companies I know can't do multi-touch attribution. So what happens is your community initiatives suffer, right? So I think it's really important to understand the values of a community. I was having a chat with Atlassian's CRO and Atlassian's case studies in the book. Their community came together to organize 5,000 events last year. Self-organized, let's call it that. So what that tells me is they have 5,000 super fans that went out and engaged on an average 100 people. So they touched 500,000 people last year. If Atlassian had to put the events team together to organize 5,000 events, it would cost them an arm and a leg. And so, you know, I'll dive into what are the values that enable this to happen. And it's important to ask yourself, are you cool with that? Great companies, great cultures, great communities are built on alignment. If you don't have the values of community, it'll be contrived and you won't sustain for the long haul and you're better off doing direct response, build an SDR team, do PLG, do any number of things. This community is all about giving. And so those values, as I talk to more and more and more companies, they had all kinds of values, but six values were common to community-led businesses. I call it camper or the camper framework, and it's cheesy, but if you have a camper interacted in your company or implemented in your company proactively, you'll have happy campers. And so C for stands for connection. People crave to be connected to one another. They, they draw energy from it. Autonomy, again, you look at the Atlassian example. If you say, oh, don't stretch my logo this way, or you can't say this or that, volunteers are going to be like, screw you. Like, I don't, I don't care, right? Like, I'm not going to host this event. Mastery, people want to get better and better. And so Atlassian always gives love to their community members. They enable them. They give them tools, resources, so they can self-organize. They don't make their life difficult saying, go and like die on this cross yourself. If your super fans want to do something for you, enable them. The other is purpose, having a greater purpose beyond the profits. Fifth is energy. Great communities are built on great energy. I mean, you've probably been to events where you had great camaraderie and connection and you had fun. And then a speaker comes and the audience just like leaves. So energy is key in communities. And if you see some of the greatest movements of all times, those movements have massive energy. And the last one is recognition. When you have a community-led organization, you need to recognize people and appreciate them, no matter how big or small, when you proactively appreciate people, they feel they feel like they're doing something of significance and they show up more and more. And until the day robots are buying from robots, it's going to be human to human connections and you can't get away from that recognition. And so this, this giving has to, be, uh, has to be key, this camper. I'll stop there for a second. You must have a framework for how you help other people build communities. Why don't you start off talking me through that question? Someone's come to you said, I've got you know a seed stage or maybe it's a bootstrap business, got my first few customers. I believe CLG. I've read the book, Lloyd. How do I go and do it myself? So I will give you the framework. Now I can talk in high level platitudes in terms of like, you know, I, the book has small communities and the book has big communities like the Atlassians and the HubSpots. The thing is, if I, if I share HubSpots journey or Atlassians journey right now, it might be very hard to relate, especially to bootstrap. So I'm going to talk about both journey, okay? When I when I started the conversation, I said, when you're starting out, it literally feels like you're throwing spaghetti on the wall. We had nothing figured out. Today, it feels like a framework, which we, we, we wrote down, and I actually end up writing it down as I was writing the book, thinking back. So when we started Boast, we were in this obscure city in Calgary, like small city in Calgary, right? Calgary, Canada. I was in San Francisco. My co-founder was actually from Vancouver, but his wife was articling in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and he had to move there. So we're like, okay, we'll start the company here. Small market is good. It's easy, no competition. We go there and the first step is like, do what I knew, cold call. So I tried cold calling 
oil and gas companies, construction companies, manufacturing companies. People are like, who are you guys, right? Two guys saying, give me your R&D data and I'll get you money from the government, no dilution, no interest, right? It's the best form of capital. Now, it sounds like a scam. And the ones that who knew about it said, oh, I just do it with my big four accounting firm. So we started to get dejected. We're like, okay, let's start swarming the events of these companies, these people, right? These industries, manufacturing, oil and gas construction. We started going and we just couldn't resonate. It just felt like, you know, like we weren't getting anywhere. We we looked like two guys who threw a suit jacket on top of a hoodie and they were the old boys club. They just didn't want us there. So dejected, we started going into the startup community and started going to events. Now we're strangers in this community. We haven't spent any time there. We're new. We don't know anyone. And the startup founders instantly became our friends. They were so welcoming. It felt our, like our vibe. It felt like our tribe. Those people became our friends that we started hanging out with and having dinners with, partying with on the weekends. We participated in hackathons and we're like, wow, we found our tribe. So I'm going to give you the first or, or maybe the second framework here that came out. You don't have a customer or an ideal customer profile that you want to create for. How do you figure out who you should create for? Number one, is it a customer or a topic that you draw joy from, you're passionate about? Because you know, when passion meets profession, you can become Michael Jackson. If you hate your customers, you'll never sustain for the long haul. The second thing, is it a small but growing niche? Small I like in the early days because you can find a white space around it and create for it. It's hard in a saturated market, small but growing niche. In 2012, startup market was a small niche but growing. In fact, it was so small that our competitors say, you guys are going to get bankrupt. These startups never pay. And we, we would tell them, listen, your customers don't want to do business with us. You don't want to service startup founders like us. We're left to service our own. The third is the propensity to pay. Now, for us, it was, it was easy in that we would only charge when we get them the money. So there was no upfront cost. And the last one, ease of access is key. So you, you can have all the passion in the world and it could be a small, but growing market that's going to explode and there's a propensity to pay. But if you can't access them, like manufacturing or oil and gas, you no access for two guys out of a basement kind of thing, then you'll fail, right? So it's important that to have that ease of access. So that's one. Number two was, we talked about earlier, understanding your customer. We literally, we understood where they eat, breathe, drink, and sleep. We spent so much time with them that we knew their biggest burning problems, their aspirations, their goals, and what stood in the way. We just, we just got it. We could vibe with them. Now, today it feels like a framework because back then we, it was necessity is the mother of all inventions. We were dejected, we went, and we were embraced. And, and so they became our tribe, we learned from them. But today it's like, oh, you know, this is something you should do very deliberately. And through that, we were able to like say, hey, if, if I could write a book on the aspirations of this startup community, I could write all the headlines and topics and chapters and subchapters. Then it's about finding content. And then we said, you know, what is the issue here going to events? We found two things that were white spaces. And so that's the key thing, identifying the white space. I'll, I'll tell you how we found the white space. In going to all these events, what we realized is every conversation that was happening at these events were high-level CEO platitudes. You got founders in the room who are zero to one, listening to some founder in 2012 at like a 50 million revenue or a big exit, these big CEOs, because big CEOs sell tickets, right? And the events were organized by event organizers. It's not helpful to me. If I want to do run my business, I don't need inspiration. I already jumped in, right, on the deep end. I've already quit my job, decided to do this. Inspiration is good once in a while, but I don't need that mental masturbation sort of thing. I need like, how do I get my first customers? How do I launch my first product? How do I get my first angel investors? How do I do my first launch campaign? I don't know. How do I do SE? I need like the things that I need to go from zero to one. 
And that wasn't happening. So we said white space number one. White space number two was there was no media coverage for the startups in that community. None, zero. And, and so I reached out to the local newspaper and I'm like, hey, there's no coverage. I'm happy to write for free. Would you give me a call? And they're like, no, there's no coverage because you know it's not a priority for us. So starting what it did was started reaching out to other local blogs that were popular and asked them if I could cover some startups for them. And they were happy too because they're all run by small outfits. So they gave me a blog. I, I guest posted a couple of them. And I featured a few entrepreneurs who, who are starving for PR. So they socialized the hell out of it. It got like hundreds of retweets. I took that as social proof, went back to the newspaper. And I said, can you give me a column? I mean, like check the coverage, the, check the reach this has gotten. I'll bring the same reach to you. They're like, fine, we'll give you a blog. They said, I'll give you one blog post. Now, I, I, I truly believe this. Never, in most cases, as long as you're not doing anything illegal or criminal, don't ask for forgiveness. Like, don't ask for permission. Beg for forgiveness. So I called that that first article Startup of the Week. I created this frenzy around apply, et cetera, within. And I got a lot of email addresses through that. And the first entrepreneur I ended up covering socialized 10x. And everyone in the community thought the local newspaper is launching this column called Startup of the Week which they weren't. You know, with Startup of the Week has a notion that you're of significance. You're a startup of the week by the newspaper. It got so socialized, so widely socialized that the editor calls me and he's like, listen, if you commit to writing this every week, I will make it a print column. And that was like the aha moment, right? Because everything when you're starting out follows this pattern of visibility, credibility, and then profitability. How do you get credible when you're just starting out? You need to be visible with people of bigger influence, more influence than you. You need their brand rub. And so now being in the local newspaper gave us three things. We could have blogged on our website. The SEO would probably take two years. We got a weekly backlink from the highest domain authority in the country. It's a newspaper, right? Backlinking to us for a specific, I, I, I put our keyword, anchor texted keyword. Usually if you do it from spammy websites, Google doesn't like it. But if it's the anchor texted keyword, is coming from the highest domain authority website, like the newspaper, then you get, we got credibility as being columnists on the newspaper. We had a woofoo form there saying apply if you want to be featured. So we started collecting email addresses. And then the fourth thing was this weird dynamic started to happen. Every Monday at 6 or 7 a.m., entrepreneurs were storming the newsstand to get copies of the print and take photos and share it, share it with family members, share copies with family members, share pics on social. And I think even today, there's so many blogs, but actually being in a print column of a newspaper is maybe Makes you, makes you feel more legit. Now we leveraged those email addresses to host our own meetups because the volume of emails were coming and we started hosting our meetups and the messaging went something like, hey, Andrew, we're bringing Patrick to talk about how he got his first million in ARR and he's gonna walk through this step-by-step -step on how we validated the market and the channels used exactly. We got 10 spots and free pizza at our co-working space. We couldn't afford a space, right? Pizza was like $9.99 for 10 people back then. And so 10 people showed up. Now the key learnings there, you know, as I said, was communication, creation, and consistency. We just never stopped. 10 people showed up, we kept doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it, kept writing Startup of the Week. I wrote that column for free for two and a half years. When I stopped writing it, that column stopped. And so our email database started growing, our meetups started growing, and one day we did this meetup at the co-working space where 200 people showed up. 200 people showed up, we had to hijack the aisles, rent a makeshift like projector for $50 really cheap from down, down the road, some electronics store or whatever. And then the co-working space guys are like, listen, this is not like, you know, this is not a meetup, we can't do this here. You know, you disrupted the whole space. You know, you got to get out of here if you want to do these kinds of events. That evolved into eventually becoming Traction Conf and then became a conference and community and all of that. So the key learning there was figure out your channel, right? Once, once you understand your customers, figure out the white space and do two things. An online channel to build an audience and 
either an online or an offline off offline channel to simultaneously build that audience, to, uh, bring that audience together. So you're building the audience through the startup of the week. People are reading, people are applying, and then you're bringing that audience together through in-person meetups. Now, I like meetups. Doing those meetups by 2020 took us to about 30-ish thousand subscribers. See, there's something to be said about the dynamic of meeting in person. Anytime you incorporate more than two senses, we're, we're sound in sight. So Andrew, if we're doing this in person, we'll probably hang out a few more hours, right? You CMO, I don't know anything about marketing, but like I'm a, I'm a student of marketing rather than an expert in marketing. So I like to, we would probably jam for a few hours and we get to know each other personally, et cetera. So anytime you incorporate more senses, you build stronger bonds. And so that dynamic was having the online offline thing. And so going consistent on a channel that creates your audience and then going consistent on a channel that brings your audience together, that one-two combo made it explode. As you're talking, I'm scanning some of the uh, some of the topics in your book because for those who haven't got it yet, it's from grassroots to greatness, and there are 13 rules you talk about here to build iconic brands with community-led growth. And, and I know some of the things you've got here fit into it, and there's a whole bunch of things here that go beyond what you're talking about here in much more specific. So given that we've got a whole bunch of people on this call, you know, hopefully a whole bunch of them will go and buy the book and read it in more depth. How would you like summarize what you think are the most impactful learnings from what you've gathered together from these thousands of people you've spoken to. So now let's go beyond those those tips to start out. What are the things that you really think are the takeaways from a, from from the reading? I think you know one of the key things is figuring out and starting small, right? Once you understand your audience, once you've nailed your audience. See, every startup, I talk about communities in this book in the sense of building a startup, not like some broad little idea kind of thing, like not like a club, right? It's about providing value keep injecting new value, and then eventually you'll start to monetize either by subscribe, getting people to pay for it or people to buy your product, right? So I think a lot of people, what they want to do is try new flavors of the month. Oh, do I do a blog? Do I do a podcast? Pick one. I want to build an audience. What's the one thing you're going to dominate? I want to build a community. What's the one thing you're going to dominate? And just to be consistent and go deep. The other thing, you know, I want to share more tactics is people think they're just going to throw something out there and the platform will distribute it for them. That's not going to happen, right? You have to seed it in the beginning. Honestly, if email didn't exist, I wouldn't be here. Many businesses wouldn't be here. What people don't realize is the value of email. All 90% of our initial conversions came from email, inviting people, personalized emails, sending them. Now, you're not saying buy my stuff. You're inviting them personalized to things. So you got to seed it. If, if you have a blog post, you got to seed it. You got to share it with people so they share it. But once that initial buzz takes form, like even on LinkedIn, right? Like if within the first 30 minutes, 20, 30 people go and engage on it, comment on it, and you comment back on it, if you seed it like that, it'll start exploding. That's literally how it is. That is the number one thing. A lot of people think, okay, I'm going to do these tactics and then I'm just going to throw it out there. I'll throw an Eventbrite ring and I'll put a post on LinkedIn and like hundreds of people register. It never happens like that, right? You got you to gotta seed it. That is one. The other thing I'm like flipping through the chapters in terms of what would be valuable is, you know, try not to be an inch wide and a, sorry, a mile wide and an inch deep. In the early days, be an inch wide and a mile deep. So pick that one, one. One kind of customer, one kind of value, one kind of channel will take you really far. Like every startup goes through this journey. Every community goes through this journey. Phase one is validation. They have a problem. You have a potential solution. They put faith in you to give you a chance to try it out by paying you, by investing their time, money, whatever. Phase two is product market fit, meaning now you've expanded beyond the, I got 10 unaffiliated people to pay me to try it out to more people I'm going to bring into the fold. 50 people, 100 people. And now the goal of product market fit to me has always been retention. Do they keep coming back? The leading indicator of retention is engagement. Do they keep using it? Do they keep using it? Do they keep using it? If, they, if you can sell whatever annual contract you want, if customers don't use it, they'll cancel. 
Now, some people get by by selling like these $10 products, gym memberships that people don't notice on your credit card. But the minute they notice, they're going to be like, I never used it. I never got value, right? So it's like deliver value, make sure you drive engagement, and then they won't churn. The third phase is figuring out a repeatable, scalable channel. I call it like community channel fit or product channel fit, where you figure out one repeatable, scalable way to acquire people in, right? To bring people in. And once you're at that point, you have one kind of customer getting one kind of value coming through one kind of channel, then you can focus on scale. And scale is all about spending 75% of your energy on throwing fuel on the fire, and then 25% of your time trying new products, new markets, new technologies kind of thing. You know, I've seen so many communities, and you know, I don't want to name names, we'll go unnamed. But recently, there was a massive community that exploded during the pandemic on the scene. Now, they had an initial early stage founder community going that was highly valuable. But in no time, they raised a lot of money and they created a community for every possible function in the company they, they created. What happened in the last six months was when the unicorn porn buzz died and reality hit the fan when people are like, you know what, we can't overspend. They had to lay off a lot of people and bring back their focus to the one or two things. And this is key, right? When when you you can't dilute it in the early days, you got to do things that don't scale. Doing things that don't scale enable you to treat people with love and, and put focus on that and make it better and better. If something is not perfect, the worst thing you want to do is try another thing. So I encourage people to think that way because a lot of folks, they say, okay, I want to create a community. I'm going to go all full-blown on YouTube and then I'm going to go on LinkedIn. I'm going to go everywhere. And they spread themselves too thin. You got to understand if you want to do that, technology enables us to do that, right? You, we do this interview. We can cut it into YouTube. We can cut it into LinkedIn, the text into LinkedIn. We can cut the shorts. You can, you can distribute it everywhere. But as a small team or a solo team building an early community, distributing everywhere is fine because it's easy to cut with AI and technology. But you need to focus on one channel, right? because you need to seed that channel. You can't beg all your friends to go and be like, okay, like my Instagram post and then like my YouTube and comment there and like my LinkedIn and show up here and show up. They're gonna be like, go to hell, right? You need to seed something and focus something your love on in the beginning. So I think that focus is really key. The other thing what I like to talk about here is creating an exceptional experience, a great aha moment. A lot of people focus on retention and they say retention, retention. Yes, retention is key. If you don't have retention, you're not product market fit. But what they don't do is they don't peel back the onion to figure out what is the leading indicator of retention? It's engagement. Now, what is the leading indicator of engagement? It is onboarding, right? So it's akin to saying, I invite you to my house, you show up and you're swimming through some garbage, you meet some random people, I'm not there to greet you, and you meet the randos and you're gonna bounce versus I invite you to my house, I greet you at the door, I pour you a drink, I introduce you to three or four people who are like CMOs in your same category. You meet some influencers, like maybe you meet Gary Vee and you're like, wow, I'm staying here. I'm, I'm like not leaving, right? And, and something like that then eventually turns into a burning man. And so that is very important is like how, what your initial community experience is. is it, think of your community like a product, basically. If you want people to stay, you want them to pay, you want them to keep coming back and then also invite their friends. Think of your community like a product, not this thing that sits in marketing. And I'll tell you one perfect example to encapsulate this. Harley Davidson almost went bankrupt in the 80s, okay? You know, we always talk about technology. Yesterday's innovation is always tomorrow's commodity. In the 80s, you know, we talk about AI commoditizing everything, but in the 80s, what happened? The Japanese manufacturers were commoditizing electronics. Harley faced almost near bankruptcy. 
their leadership said, we're going to build a company on the ethos of community. The leadership went out there and deliberately seeded writing clubs. What do you think? The writing clubs just came out of nowhere. They went and seeded it. Employees became writers. Writers became employees. They said, community is going to be a company strategy with oversight from the president, not in a marketing strategy. This is another thing that people do is like, oh, we need a community. Let's hire a marketing intern or a community manager and dump them in marketing. Come on. Like as a founder, if you don't go and spend time with customers, with your audience, then this marketing person is not going to be able to carry your vision forward, right? They're just, they're starting here. Your vision sits here. You got to evangelize it. And so over time, those writer clubs started coming together. It became rituals and they created movements to not only save Harley Davidson, but donate breast cancer and autism. And today there are very few brands that are iconic to the level of Harley where people tattoo the logo on their body or for, as a moniker uh, promoting this book, I've been literally going to conferences and events. Uh, I went to a big event yesterday and I wore the Harley boots and like, you know, tight pants and like a leather vest. And people can associate. They're like, dude, why do you why do you dress like a Harley person? I'm like, because it's chapter one in my book, which says if you build a community, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna build you. It's hard. If you build a community, you won't become a commodity. So those are some key things that I would encourage you to to think through. Actually, one more thing, which is really really key, and I have a very recent example to give on this as well. Rewarding your champions. We talked about earlier. Your, your culture should embody recognition, reward. Rewarding your champions is really key. A lot of people, what they do is they'll do events and they'll be like, ah, oh, this is the volunteer crew. And they sit outside like a bunch of glorified slaves, right? I, I hate to use that word, but like, it's it's like that they're sitting somewhere on the side. I, last year attraction, what we did was we went to all our volunteers and we found the ones that really wanted to, you know, had the passion for speaking and all of that. And we give everyone, we broke our conference, of course, everything is like pre-lunch, post-lunch, et cetera. So we gave every volunteer a chance to MC. Startup Grind also does this, right? And uh, I never hog the stage. I, I don't even moderate any sessions. I think last year was the first session I ever moderated on stage. We invite like folks from TechCrunch and, and other good speakers who are volunteers to moderate sessions. Treat your volunteers with love and respect. What happens is every community has this dynamic of, 1% are super fans, right? They'll they'll explode your word of mouth. The 9% are casual contributors and the 90% are lurkers. You want to elevate your super fans to community leaders. People are not just volunteering for love and fresh air. They have some innate desires. When they go to a community, they want brand recognition. Maybe if they're outward facing, they want brand recognition. They want to build their businesses. They want some profile. They want some connections. Let them go and hang out with speakers backstage. As long as, you know, there's some basic guidelines that, hey, don't like go and, and try to oversell them something. Or there are people who are not outward facing as much and they just want to learn. Enable those opportunities for them, right? I'll give you a very good example because I didn't get a chance to write about it in this book and I wish it had happened like a few months before this came together. I would have totally written about it. But LinkedIn reached out to me and be like, we'd like your content. And uh, I think they were recommended by my buddy, Melissa Kwan, told somebody at LinkedIn, a friend at LinkedIn, and they were looking for good creators and they were running this LinkedIn creator mentorship program. They're like, hey, we're, we like your content. We're putting a small cohort of uh, creators that we think are going to do well in the future to give them some coaching and some guidance on best practices. So they had like a four-week program and they gave me so much love and I got to meet so many cool people from like tech and startups and other industries. And I'm like, wow, wow. Like this is the way to elevate somebody who's creating like, you know, and, and see, I'm still a casual contributor on LinkedIn. I have, uh, I've kept my last post as a book, but before that I post like once, twice a week. They all do well, like 400 plus likes. But nonetheless, they appreciated that. They appreciated the content. 
They featured a couple of them in their LinkedIn newsletter and they invited me, right? They, they invited me and now they're connecting me with people. They're giving me resources. It's like camper framework in fire, on fire, right? Recognition, this immense energy in there, right? Mastery, they want me to get better. Autonomy, of course, because they're not saying post exactly like this. Leverage this framework and post and, and we'll, we'll guide you. The connection, the camaraderie they created and the greater purpose of changing lives through content. And so that was a great example. I would have totally included it in the book, but you know, I wanted to share that as elevate your super fans. If you don't do it, you're missing out because your super fans will turn your casual contributors into into more super fans. That's an awesome place to end. I love Lloyd how you are not just a instigator and host of communities. You're also someone who has you have you're a participant and on LinkedIn in that example, they unleashed camper on you. So that's a lovely way to close the loop. Lloyd, we could carry on talk, talking for ages. We've got more than enough here to fill uh loads of uh loads of um well, more than one podcast, but we'll we'll wrap it all up into one. I really appreciate it. You make it so super easy. Anything else you want to make sure we land with? I've got all the links. I've got everything from your doc. I think we went through loads of stuff there with it. We'll write up as a field guide and link out to you and I'll make sure we promote it as well. Anything more we can do? We'll have a accompanying Notion workbook with deeper, more academic templates and videos from some of the interviews I conducted. So it's all in one place. And then, then all the podcast interviews, I'll put it on the website late next week. This book was meant to be more stories. I had a learning disability, I guess. I, I never read a book cover to cover. It was all audiobooks. So I had to write it in a way that was digestible to me. So it's a lot of stories. It'll be an easy read, unacademic read. And then the academic stuff will be on the Notion workbook. The book is 99 cents on fromgrassrootstogreatness.com. Get the digital. I want it to be accessible for everyone. I could have made it free, then I have to distribute it. If it's 99 cents, it's a verified purchase. The more reviews I get, Amazon starts distributing it for me. So thank you so much. I, I only leave you with this, right? Brands of yesterday were built on what they told the world about themselves and brands of the future will be built on what the people, what the community says about them. And another call to people here, like a lot and a lot of companies are chastising their employees from creating personal brands on LinkedIn. If you discourage your employees from creating their own audiences and their communities, eventually you'll be paying other people to do the same for you. The micro-influencer category is at an absolute rise. If you build a community, you won't become a commodity. Shout out to Lloyd for being on the show. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson from today's episode was your favorite. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.